lot of the talk the past couple of days, though, here in the province has centered around Sam Oosterhoff. Photographed, of course, indoors at a uh, banquet hall without a mask. Premier has been asked about this time and time again. He is standing by his man. He is standing by Oosterhoff. Says that uh, Sam Oosterhoff, he has apologized and basically the government, uh, they're moving on. However, of course, uh, some believe that this is just the latest example of do as I say, not as I do. And it's also adding to people's COVID fatigue and their distrust in officials. For some people, they are tired of hearing from officials that we have to do this, live this way. And then you see an MPP and other uh, officials, politicians, uh, photographed doing uh, otherwise. And all of that, that uh, distrust and that COVID fatigue seems to be playing out in a new IPSA survey for Global News on Canadians and pandemic fatigue. Let's welcome in Daryl Bricker. He's the CEO of IPSA, and he joins us now for more on this on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Daryl, good afternoon. Okay, well, what is this survey, Daryl? What is it telling us about the Canadians and our public health officials? Yeah, it's it's really interesting when you take a look at the complexity of Canadian public opinion on this and how Canadians are coping with you know these very difficult circumstances. About half of us say that we're now getting pretty tired of it. But even though we're getting tired of it, we're still doing it, particularly when it comes to things like wearing masks. In fact, we're, we're seeing the incidence of people uh, uh, wearing masks and even feeling that masks should be mandatory, that actually rising. Uh, and the reason probably for that, Jeff, is because they don't know much else that they can do to discipline other people than other than to see that they're wearing a mask. It's, it's almost, uh, it's funny how that's changed. In the past, if you would have seen somebody wearing a mask, you would probably wouldn't run the other way. Now it's a sign that somebody's probably taking their health and safety and your health and safety seriously. Yeah, but when it comes to 49% of us, 49% of uh, Canadians uh, having some sort of uh, fatigue and tired of public health officials, is it just that this has gone on too long and you've heard the same message as uh, you suggest, uh, Daryl, time and time again? Is that what's fueling this this fatigue? Well, it's a combination of the fact that it's gone on for a long time, but also uh, this sense that the uh, the light at the end of the tunnel is getting further and further away. So if you, uh, when we first started into doing this research, it was really interesting. Uh, you know, the first time I think we asked about COVID was like in February or March. And we asked people whether or not they figured it would be over by June. And, and most people thought it would be. Uh, and now when you ask people, it's a year, even from today, further out and maybe even further than that. So what's happening is it's not just the sort of the, the difficulty of the journey. It's the sense of a bit of helplessness that we're not really making any progress. We're not, things are not improving. I don't see the end of this any nearer in sight. And all of that adds up to creating fatigue. All right. The Ipsos uh, research also has some interesting findings uh, regarding this fatigue and different age groups or uh, demographics. Yeah, younger people are really feeling it the hardest. And uh, people, uh, uh, particularly in, I would say, urban centers, are are feeling this particularly the hardest. And that might be as a result of the fact that they have less access to, you know, the outdoors, uh, that they may, uh, you know, be cooped up in apartments, you know, even without balconies or whatever. But definitely it's younger people who who are feeling the pinch. And also, do we figure it's young people because they feel like they're kind of sacrificing their their future or that it's going up in flames where maybe some people that are middle-aged or in that older demographic have uh, 
you know, kind of lived the bulk of their uh, life. Uh, do you think the younger demographic feels as if the uh, sands are slipping through the hourglass, to quote a famous soap opera, <laughs> or going, uh, you know, it's going by and they're not getting anything done? Yeah, I think that definitely could be part of it. I mean, if you're somebody who's not able to attend university or school or you're somebody who's looking for their first job and you find that nobody's hiring out there right now, you're probably your employment, if, if you're younger, was probably more precarious uh, than somebody who's been in a job for a longer period of time. So, yeah, you're you're paying a disproportionate price for this, and I think it comes out in the numbers. Yeah. Now, having said that, you mentioned this a moment ago, but I think it's worth underscoring or underlying this fact that despite the fact 49 percent of us say that we are tired of hearing from or following public uh, health officials and uh, rules, we are the majority of us still following them. Yeah, 93 percent of us say that we are doing our best to follow them. And, and you know, asking Canadians uh, uh, you know, to agree to do anything at the level of 93% is almost unheard of. If, you know, for example, if we asked them to go vote in an election, and we're, we're lucky to get over 60% of the population doing that. So hmm. uh, that, uh, that 93% are say that they're at least doing their best. We can evaluate how good the best is, but, you know, they're, they're claiming that they are uh, is, uh, is remarkable. Okay, if we're at 48%, half of Canadians roughly tired of uh, hearing from or following public health rules, is there a concern or should there be a concern for officials that the longer this drags out and plays out, and as you mentioned, you know, it looks like this is going to be at least this time next year, that that number will be higher, it'll continue to rise? Yeah, and the thing that, and this is another survey data that we see, the thing that is, is really worrisome in all of this is even though people are complying, even though they're saying they're fatigued with following all of this, the mental health consequences are, are clearly beginning to mount. Uh, so, you know, nearly half of people that we interviewed said that they were struggling um, with, uh, with, with dealing with this situation. So, uh, you know, there's the direct health consequences, but then there's these indirect things that are starting to build and, and, and create potentially also, uh, you know, really serious health care uh, problems, maybe not from infection, but certainly uh, mental health concerns. Daryl, pleasure as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Daryl Bricker is the CEO of Ipsos. Now, earlier this morning on The Morning Show, Carolyn and myself, we were joined by Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious disease specialist, and he talked about uh, the survey and COVID fatigue, and we also got Dr. Bogosh's take on the Prime Minister's remarks from yesterday that, indeed, COVID sucks and that the holidays look like they might be up in the air. We are in an unprecedented global pandemic that really sucks. It's tough going through this second wave. It's frustrating having shut down all of us, our lives, through the spring uh, and now be forced to make more difficult choices and knowing that it's going to be a tough winter ahead as well. Well, you don't often hear the Prime Minister saying something sucks, but when it comes to 2020, (laughs) it's a pretty apt description. Yeah, just not only for the last few weeks, but you're absolutely right. I think the last is six or seven months. And the Prime Minister alluding there as well that there's some tough decisions ahead. And, of course, a lot of folks reading into that thinking that Christmas might be uh, up in the air. So is Christmas, is it off the table? Let's go right to infectious disease specialist Dr. Isaac Bogosh, who joins us this morning. And, uh, doctor, what is your take? Was the prime minister, do you think, setting the table there for us all not to set our Christmas tables? Well, I agree with him. <laughs> what he says, it sucks. I mean, yeah, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. It's awful. We Sadly, Canada surpassed 10,000 deaths. I mean, this is awful. This is absolutely awful. It impacts us here at home. It's impacting the world. I also, 
uh, you know, I'll try. I appreciate that message that even though Christmas and New Year and Hanukkah and Diwali are, are coming up, uh, and they might be a month or two away, depending on the holiday, you look at where we are in Canada, you look at the trajectory of our cases, and there should be no surprises. And I think we're going to see a modified holiday season in many, many parts of the country. I think it's going to look differently depending on where we are. Certainly, there's you know different parts of the country are impacted in different ways. We're probably going to see regional advice from the public health authorities. But I, it's pretty clear that Christmas, New Year's, Diwali, Hanukkah are going to be celebrated in a modified and probably a more tempered manner this year. On top of that, Dr. Bogosh, a new Global News Ipsos poll says nearly half of Canadians are tired of hearing from health officials. Let me just say, Dr. Bogosh, we never tire of hearing from you. <laughs> um, then just last night, the Dodgers win the World Series, and we saw a player pulled from the game after testing positive for COVID, only to return to the field to celebrate with his teammates, take off his mask. What do you think of that, and what does this say about people not heeding the advice of health officials anymore? Yes, yeah, a couple of good points there. Certainly, I think we're all tired of this, but of course, we have to remain vigilant. We know how this virus is transmitted. We know how to prevent this virus, and we know what we need to do to prevent transmission within our homes and within our communities. So we might be tired with this virus, but by no means is this virus through. Um, now, when you see people with, you know, this, this case here is very interesting, right? Like, you know, we don't actually have all the details and it's not entirely clear if this is a true positive case, if this is a false positive case, if, what, what, it's hard to know exactly what's going on, but let's just assume, and that's an assumption, but let's assume that someone's infected with COVID-19. No, you, you certainly wouldn't want to be in close contact with other people uh, celebrating. You're, you're going to put other people at risk. We've seen this actually in Canada. We've heard uh, senior political leaders uh, across the country talk about different circumstances where people have known they were positive or were in the you know, at risk or exposed and were still conducting themselves as if nothing had happened. And that's clearly the wrong approach. So whether or not that's COVID fatigue or, or something else, we know the right things to do. We also know the wrong things to do. There's no excuses at this point. We know what masks, physical distancing, hand sanitation are. We should be really heeding the advice or continuing to heed the advice of our public health authorities. Do health officials have to do anything different to try and get that message across, particularly if the greater good isn't getting through anymore? Yeah, I, I think that it's just repeated messaging, but perhaps better and more effective messaging. And quite frankly, we know that there are behavioral change experts and communication specialists. So, you know, I think we can really enlist communication experts and behavioral change experts to help to help with this. Okay, there's Dr. Isaac Bogosh with us earlier this morning on the morning show. A couple of things I want to touch on there. First of all, this is a ball player, uh, Justin Turner, as we uh, welcome Mary and Rob into the conversation as well. I mean, I'm sure we've all seen the video by now if you weren't watching the World Series last night. But this player, I mean, this is just extraordinary. I mean, these are extraordinary times we live in. But this was just an extraordinary thing that happened during this game. Turner is pulled midway through the World Series game because he tests COVID positive, And then they win the uh, World Series. And then he's back out there, first with the mask on, but he is touching. I mean, I'm looking at photos of my laptop here. He's touching the World Series uh, trophy, so, you know, that's contact, and it's passed around from player to player. And then later on, he's in without a mask on the team photo. I mean, how does that make any sort of sense? It doesn't make any sense. It's terrible. Like, you, 
you can't. You just can't do that. You should have not even come out at all. Yeah, I mean, I understand being like caught up in the moment and the emotions are, are running high. And to quote uh, our prime minister, it sucks <laughs> that you can't, you know, celebrate with your teammates and that you can't enjoy this moment. I mean, this is the crowning achievement of any ball player. And it sucks that you can't be a part of that. But having said that, you can't be a part of that. <laughs> You've right. just tested positive, Mary, for COVID. Exactly. And I mean, let's face it. Okay. Personally, I've never won a World Series. I've never been close to winning Dare a to World dream. Series. Who knows? I know. You <laughs> never know, right? Maybe one day. But the bottom line is, let's face it, guys, you know, we've all made sacrifices. We've all not been able to do things that we wanted to do, whether it's being with people, hugging people, touching something, being with a group, we have all made sacrifices. And quite frankly, people who are public figures like a sports you know, athlete, we hold them to a bit of a higher standard. We expect them to be, you know, setting an example, setting a bar. And in this case, it, you know what? It was the opposite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know that uh, professional athletes will say, I didn't sign up to be a role model. You'll hear that from time to time. But whether you like it or not, you, you are, are. Yeah. and you're held in uh, high esteem, particularly by kids, younger people, and some adults as well who just absolutely love what you do uh, on the field of play. And, and what it you... comes with the, the big bag of cash that you get all the time, too. I mean, you know, suck it up. You're yeah. a celebrity, whether you want to be or not. But, you know, know I was going to say it doesn't matter uh, if it's on the field of play or off the field of play. What you do matters and it does set uh, an example whether you like it or not uh, the other thing we're just touching on this with dr bogosh as well is trying to get this message about face masks out i mean you know in this case we have an athlete uh, not pushing forward the the right message uh, to people but people are as we've uh, said here in the last 10 15 minutes are tuning out to health officials more and more now that they they're getting fatigued and they're hearing this message over and over again wash your hands wear a mask stay six feet apart and i think i espoused this last week but maybe they just need to change the messaging a little bit and actually scare people straight if you will and get some of these long haulers out and uh, let's put some uh, names and faces to this uh, disease and have them tell their story maybe the premier should welcome one or two of them up in his press conference his daily press conference and have them detail what they've uh, been through and uh, what they've had to struggle through and maybe that will really uh, you know break this covid fatigue and drive the message home and no doubt, I mean, so many businesses, so many people are struggling. And I think we, we feel that and we see that and we hear that and we can empathize with that. At the same time, I, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but you just need to talk to somebody who's been through a war, somebody who's been through great atrocity, somebody who's had to really fight, you know, for their life. And you go, you know, you know what? I can do this. We can do this. And, you know, just keeping in mind that, you know, we're all, I hate to say it, but we're all in this together. And being mindful of that with somebody else, whether it means going to your local restaurant and supporting them or giving someone a break at the grocery store if they, you know, 
hit you with the cart or whatever, just understanding that, hey, you know what, we're going to get through this. And there's other people who've gone through horrible atrocities. And yeah, it's going to be, you know, a longer road ahead, but we, we can do this and we can, you know, just try and put on a happy face, try and find some humor in it and, and take one foot forward. Okay, we promised, we promised we were going to stay on this story and we are keeping our promise on that. Uh, the Ontario NDP and several health care units when it comes to long-term care asking the Ford government to fast-track legislation written by the New Democrats that they say would ensure a minimum standard of care when it comes to our seniors in long-term care. Let's welcome in the NDP's long-term care critic, Teresa Armstrong. She is on the line and joins us for more on this now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Teresa, good afternoon. Nice to speak with you. Good afternoon, Jess. Jeff. It's nice to speak with you as well. Thank you for the invitation. Okay, your party has tabled this a bill called the Time to Care Act. Just exactly what is the NDP calling for and how will it help when it comes to long-term care? So we've tabled this bill four times. Um, so this will be the fourth time that we are tabled the Time to Care Act. And what it does, it legislates a minimum of care hours of 4.1 hours um, per resident for care per resident per day. Um, we have heard, and we, you know, for decades, um, that there is not enough uh, time in the day for workers to deliver the care to their residents. And there's been studies, uh, reports, and most recently the commission, the government's own commission, in their interim report last week, has recommended that there needs to be a four minimum hours of care along with investments uh, to make sure that happens. So this is not anything new. Um, the government opposition members that were in uh, the legislature before the Conservatives, they voted for this bill. Um, the Liberals, when this bill was brought before the House, all parties support. So when the Liberals were in power, when the uh, Conservatives were in official opposition, everybody agreed. So this is something that can be done. I mean, if you think about what we're going through right now um, in the pandemic, over 1,900 people died in long-term care, including the workers, and that is just egregious. And the time to care bill needs to pass in order for us to actually make a difference in the workers' ability to deliver that care and the quality of care of residents who are receiving that care. Okay, C couldn't know. agree more. Sorry to interrupt that. Yes, yeah, something needs to be done and time is of the essence. I think we're all on side with that. Uh, just wanted to drill down, though, first of all, on the number of hours of care. We want to up it, you say, to four hours. Uh, do we know where it currently sits right now? Well, there's there's back and forth. The government's never actually, uh, you know, studied what how many hours and what the cost is to bring it up to four hours. So my understanding, what the government said is there's 3.75 hours of care uh, in, in for residents, but that's not legislated, and that is not hours paid uh, or worked. Those are only hours paid. Workers have put in. Um, time that they don't get paid for. So it's not a, a real number that you can take to the bank, so to speak. Where we're getting the four hours is from reports and studies that have happened. And there, that is what we need to ensure that it's been done. It's legislated and it's mandated so that we can guarantee that those hours are, are performed of care on our residents. 
Okay, I think it's uh, interesting as well, uh, sorry, that uh, not only are you trying to push this bill through the NDP, but also several health care unions, sorry, as I mentioned off the top, this bill has got their support. Uh, Were they consulted in the drafting uh, of this bill and uh, when it comes to sort of minimum hours of care and that sort of thing? Yeah, I've talked to each individual unit, uh, unions, um, before I uh, went to second reading, and it's been dealt, like I said, it's been tabled before, and we would have done our research. And they're on side. They've been written support letters. Um, Pat Armstrong and her colleagues um, have also uh, in, uh, supported this bill and said we need a four hours and we need the investment behind it. Um, the government, like I say, the government's own commission from workers' testimony have given an interim report with the recommendation that four hours of care is needed, mandated, legislated, and investment needs to come behind it. So right now, we are probably um, in a situation where this is long overdue. We had we used to have a standard of uh, care, um, but then when the Conservative government under Mike Harris came in, they they uh, removed that. They eliminated the minimum hours of care. Back in 2003, the Liberals uh, promised to replace uh, minimum hours of care, but they failed to do it. Um, and since then, we have been presenting a bill, uh, presented the bill four times starting 2016. So we've been calling for this for quite some time. Um, the minister said that they're going to support it. They're in favor of it. Um, but we know that gestures like this have to come, have to be backed up by action. And we're pushing for this government. Yes, they're in favor of it. Favor of it. That's great. But I, when it goes to committee, I want it expedited. I want the government to call it back in committee, get the presentations and deputations they need, bring it back to the legislature for a third reading, and get this into law with the investments that it needs so that we can look after our residents. When you're talking about what happened during the pandemic, um, the Canadian Armed Forces report, this is not acceptable care in Ontario. And it was. this has been a chronic problem understaffing with staff not being able to look after our residents for decades. So it's nothing new. But what is new is that this government has an opportunity to take action and move forward and make sure our seniors have that care. If this doesn't happen, I can tell you families are going to be really disappointed that they don't have the the peace of mind when you have your loved one in long-term care. You have an expectation that they're going to receive that care. And right now, that doesn't happen. So this guarantees, time to care guarantees, you have to legislate for hours of care, and we want an investment from this government. There's no turning back. That's okay, well, as you well know, the minister in charge of this file is Mary Lee Fullerton, and I understand that she has declined to comment when it comes to fast-tracking this bill, the Time to Care uh, Act or bill. Uh, obviously, time is of the essence here. Is that your understanding from the government right now, that they're unsure whether or not this will get fast-tracked? Well, they, this government um, created legislation under COVID that when there's bills that are related to COVID, that we can expedite them, right? They have the tools to do that. They're expediting Bill 218 right now. Uh, that's one of the bills that uh, really strip away the rights of families to sue for-profit long-term care homes uh, for the negligence, right? So that is being fast-tracked right now. I want to spend time fast-tracking this time-to-care bill, and I think the government should switch their priorities and doing the time-to-care bill, because if we had workers who were delivering that time to care, that continuity of care, we wouldn't be worried about people suing 
profitable long-term care companies. We would be creating legislation to make sure working conditions allowed workers the job that they are meant to do, and that is to care for our most vulnerable uh, seniors in long-term care. During the summer, this government had time to hire new PSWs. The Quebec government did it. They hired 10,000 PSWs um, with the promise of making of paying for their training and delivering a livable wage. That could have been done here. And so we're still going back and forth. I don't want this government to be indecisive. This is nothing to be indecisive about. I feel very strongly that this needs to happen in order to make sure their most vulnerable seniors are cared for. Okay, we just heard from Minister Fullerton uh, last hour during the government's uh, daily press conference, and the government would probably say they do have a plan in place. They've invested $1.75 billion, 30,000 new beds are coming, they said, in the next decade, and just announced moments ago $100 million more for renovations for uh, HVAC and to make sure that every uh, long-term care facility has air conditioning but is that enough? Is the government uh, doing enough? It's a pretty big investment. Well, you know, the, those 30,000 beds, um, I'd like to have a breakdown of which ones are the for-profit applications that they're going to be building. Because I'd like to see the not, you can, not-for-profit care in long-term care homes um, have a better uh, quality of care, better results. So building and investing all this money into long-term care, I have yet to see them actually saying we have hired these many PSWs um, and going to be making sure that people have the care. So building, we need to have the, the workforce to do it. She, is, she has a strategy that's going to happen at the end of December. I'm sorry, that's too late. You've had all summer. You've had all summer to plan to get these workers into long-term care. They, the residents need the care. Families are demanding this. And that's the step that we should have been um, looking at over the summer combination of what they're saying is happening that's fine but the workers the worker conditions to attract psws back to this uh to the long-term care sector to make it a career for new people coming in look we know demographically we're going to have a lot of seniors coming up and we need to have a workforce that is going to be respected and is going to be able to deliver dignified care to our seniors and quality care that's the least we can do for people aging in this province who have built this province up and yeah, yeah. given us the quality of life that we have today. Yeah. Your leader, Andrea Horvath, has been critical of the minister, Mary Lee Fullerton. As a matter of fact, uh, called once again for a resignation on this very radio station uh, just the other morning. Is she the stumbling block, do you believe, in getting this done? Does she need to go in order for long-term care to prosper and to move forward? You know, look, this... This uh, pandemic, you know, long-term care has been on the radar, my radar for years, and, and the NDP's radar for years, how it needs to change, how it's been in crisis, how it's been broken. Um, and during COVID, uh, those failings were revealed. Um, the inactions of this government, people literally uh, perished. You know, they died. Imagine, imagine being a family member that you couldn't be with your loved one. Imagine being the one in long-term care dying alone. You know, that this is not acceptable. And if this is under her watch, she should absolutely take responsibility for the failings of this. Um, passing my time to care bill, you know, could have prevented uh, many of this, uh, many of these issues. When you have the right work, the right amount of workers delivering the care, the high-skilled high workers, this is a people-driven service. And we have to have people delivering the care to those residents. 
And the minister, you know, I know Andrea's called for her resignation. And yes, if that's what it takes to get the job done to make sure long-term care is dealt with properly, then she does need to step aside. All right. Uh, just finally, is the sad truth in all of this is we, we should have taken care of this. This should have been done a long time ago. We never should have been here. And whether it's your party under Bob Ray, the liberals under McGinty and when you mentioned Mike Harris uh, moments ago or the Doug Ford conservatives and now that our seniors, the sad truth is they've been overlooked by everyone. Yeah, it's time to stop your stop playing political games. I said, you know, we're here presenting a bill that's been long overdue, and uh, we, it will protect people who live in live and work in long-term care, and it'll give families, um, you know, peace of mind that their loved ones are going to be working are going to be looked after. So, you know, politics aside, let's get this done. Let's get it right. Everybody agrees on it, and it can happen with the right investments and a timeline to make sure we're looking after our most vulnerable. Yep, can happen, and it's got to happen. Things have got to get better in long-term care. Teresa Armstrong, NDP critic of long-term care, appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, Jeff. All right, be well. And to the courts next, and big news regarding the trial for Alex Manassian. He, of course, the man accused in the Toronto van attack that killed 10. Let's go right to criminal lawyer Lawrence Ben-Eliezer, who joins us now on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Lawrence, good afternoon. Good to be with you, Jeff. All right, the Manassian trial, it was delayed back in the spring because of COVID. We now have got word that it will start November the 10th by Zoom. Is that problematic? I think it is, or it's potentially very problematic, Jeff. It's, the the pandemic has presented an enormous number of uh, unprecedented challenges to the administration of justice. Defense counsel are used to and much prefer actual face-to-face um, contact with the court, with judges, with crown witnesses, and with juries, there is very little that can replace or make up for uh, or be substituted for in-person, face-to-face contact where you feel that sort of instinctive connection with other people. Um, The additional layers of technology make the process a lot less personal, arguably, and this is the most serious charge under the criminal code. So uh, the accused is uh, staring at life in prison. It's going to present everyone with enormous challenges, and it's potentially going to create very new uh, and interesting grounds of appeal, no matter which way it goes. All right. Uh, As we know, not all charges are equal. Not all trials are equal. This is certainly an explosive uh, trial, as you uh, mentioned, the most serious of charges, and of course, very uh, newsmaking for uh, obvious reasons. So do you think that this should have been held over again because of those reasons, uh, Lawrence, till a time where the trial could be held safely in person? I think that's arguably what should have happened, but in fairness to the process, um, the accused, uh, Mr. Manassian, is represented by very experienced and capable defense counsel, who I'm sure has given uh, every possible aspect of the file all due consideration, and has decided that uh, the interests of the client would best be served uh, by having a Zoom trial, or perhaps this was the subject of litigation. I, in fairness, I haven't followed the case uh, with respect to that issue. But assuming that it was on consent, it is only after 
all the stakeholders, all the parties gave it their full uh, and undivided attention and decided that the best way to proceed is by Zoom. Well, the old saying is justice delayed is justice denied. Did we have to move forward, do you think, with this trial for those very reasons? And we know that there's been all sorts of uh, charges that have been thrown out of court, both pre-pandemic and during the pandemic, because it's just taken too long. Well, the charges that have been thrown out of court, as you say, uh, because of the guidelines, violation of the guidelines in Jordan, aren't necessarily due to the pandemic. Justice delayed is not always justice denied. In fact, quite often it's justice applied because one side or the other uh, is in an unfair position uh, at the time of the adjournment or the delay and needs the delay in order to make sure that the case is treated properly in accordance with legal principles. So it's very hard uh, to come up with generalities in this case. I know that the phrase justice delayed is justice denied uh, is a very popular one. People latch onto it all the time. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is that the trial, whenever it does proceed, uh, proceed according to law and not according to some fixed calendar. All right. I've also seen some arguments today when it comes to holding a trial virtually or by Zoom that there's maybe less of an opportunity for those uh, affected to be a part of the trial, to witness the trial, tougher for media perhaps to, to cover as well. Are those legitimate considerations? They are absolutely legitimate, Jeff. We have one of the fundamental principles of our system of justice is the, is the fact that our courts are public. They are open to the public so that anyone can come in and observe uh, the trial unfold. It keeps the process transparent. People can learn and watch as to how it actually operates. And, of course, that transparency keeps the system accountable so that nothing goes on behind closed doors. Everything is open to public view, and uh, that is a deterrent against injustice. All right, we've been doing this for a few months now. Uh, Give us your take as a criminal lawyer, Lawrence. Has virtual justice overall, has it been working? It's hard to tell at this point, Jeff. I know that counsel uh, have been very reluctant to proceed in this fashion. But as a defense lawyer, if I think that the best interests of my client is to proceed virtually, then that is what I will do, always bearing in mind that there's always going to be some compromise of the ability to make full answer in defense. Again, that face-to-face contact with a witness the ability to challenge uh, crown evidence, whether given by a police officer or a civilian witness, through face-to-face aggressive cross-examination, cannot be uh, overstated. The value of that cannot be overstated. And it's a real problem uh, when some of that is lost. And the real concern, of course, is what happens in the long run? Now we're doing virtual trials because of necessity. What happens when the need goes away? Do we still continue? I don't like looking at a screen and seeing a witness testify. I can't see what's going on beneath uh, the bottom part of the screen. I don't know if the witness is looking at notes. I don't know if the witness is being prompted by anyone. You can't tell. I I am instinctively uh, opposed to that process. But at this point, it is way too early to tell. We've been doing criminal litigation in this country for 
well over 150 years, and this particular process has been in place for a few months. I, I don't think we are in any reasonable position to offer an opinion at this point. To uh, coin a phrase from the courts, the jury is still out on that, I suppose. Uh, here you with are the, correct, sir. Okay, here with that criminal lawyer, Lawrence Ben Eliezer. Also, Lawrence wanted to ask you about these uh, charges brought at St. Charles Catholic School here in Toronto. Inspectors have charged a teacher who allegedly was not wearing a face mask. First of all, here's uh, Monty McNaughton. He's the Labour Minister. He was asked about this earlier. Here was his comments. Look, I, I think we all have to do better. We have to uh, lead uh, by example. Um, I think uh, all of us uh, in the province have to uh, work uh, every single day to combat uh, the spread of uh, COVID-19. All right, what exactly, uh, Lawrence, is the uh, charge and the uh, penalty here? Well, the, the uh, charge is failing to wear a protective device, um, and it is brought under the Provincial Offenses Act. Uh, the teacher can face a $1,000 fine. And this is a teacher who was an itinerant teacher, which I take it means he uh, he travels from school to school. He doesn't have one fixed place of uh, uh, of employment, which causes some very serious concerns. Here he is moving from school to school, perhaps carrying the virus with him, and um, at at least at first blush, not appearing to take seriously a very basic concept, which is wear a mask. So uh, the penalty is going to be, I think it's a $1,000 maximum fine, uh, not, uh, not the highest fine in the world, but I presume that the, the real consequence to this teacher may go beyond the legal system. He's exposed students, teachers, staff, schools, the public, to some serious risks, and as I understand it, he tested positive. So this is why the government is so concerned that people wear masks. This is public health. Someone can uh, the, this is the philosophy behind it. Someone can easily say, well, I mean, if I get the virus, I get the virus. If I die, I die. It's my right. Well, that's fair enough. But no one has the right to infect someone else through yeah. just ignoring the law, and that's the public policy issue that's behind this. Sure. And is this charge, when it comes to employment, is it rare? Do we rarely see this? And I'm just wondering, because of the current setting and the pandemic, could this perhaps, uh, this uh, charge in this case, could it be precedent-setting? Well, of course it it could be precedent-setting on its own, because it might um, and, and it can be a precedent in a whole bunch of ways, not the least of which is encouraging people to wear masks. Because now that they see that someone's been charged and prosecuted, and if there's a con- uh, finding of guilt, um, they can see that this is not a good idea. So that's a precedent one way. And a precedent the other way is, and again, depending on the outcome of the case, if there's a conviction or a finding of guilt, it'll make prosecutions easier because the facts uh, will repeat themselves as these prosecutions continue. And our entire system, of course, is based on precedent. Uh, the Latin phrase is stare decisis, which is like cases decided alike. And that principle helps uh, us configure our behavior 
It helps us act in a way that's predictable and that we can see what the terms of, um, of behavior are to which we all agree as members of this society. So, yes, it can set a precedent in a number of ways. All right. Lawrence, appreciate the time and the perspective as always, my friend. Thanks so much. It's always my pleasure. Stay safe and healthy, Jeff. You as well. Criminal lawyer Lawrence Ben Eliezer with us. And just a reminder that you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3 Eastern. Just tune in at 640toronto.com. Also, find us on Spotify. Search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcasts.